All right. So, the greatest verse in the Bible. Greatest verse in the Bible, John 3.16. So just some thoughts here. You know, the greatest verse in the Bible is hard for people to believe, right? It's like it's too good to be true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe, would believe, would have everlasting life. Like that can't really be it, right? Just believe that Jesus is the son of God and you get to go to heaven forever. And I think that's really difficult for people to believe the simplicity of the gospel. It's hard for people to believe. Is it really that simple? And why, why is it difficult for people to believe the simplicity of the gospel? I believe it's difficult because ingrained in all of us is a desire to earn it. Ingrained in all of us is a desire to make our own way. I mean, that, that's, that's what we are under as humans, as being born under the curse of sin, is that we try to claw ourselves up out of our condition as sinful humanity to get to where God is, to be right with God. And so it, it's offensive to people, especially highly religious people who are highly religious but aren't Christians, who do a lot of good things and maybe they even go to church a lot, but they don't have a relationship with the Lord. It's hard for them to believe that it's just Simple as just believing that whoever would believe in Jesus can go to heaven. And so to really unpack John 3.16 well, we have to go back. So I'm going to kind of backtrack to where Pastor Renee was at last week. And he covered the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And what was Nicodemus's question? He's basically, you know, how, how can somebody inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus said, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean, be born again? Doesn't make any sense. And so Nicodemus is a leader amongst the Pharisees. And so it's important to note that John 3.16 doesn't really make sense unless you understand why Jesus said it. He said it to a leader of the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? They were the elite of the elite of Jewish people. They were, they were the keepers of the law of God. And so the Pharisees would have memorized the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. They would think about that. They memorized Leviticus by heart. They knew it. They could recite Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They could recite it all. This was a Pharisee. They kept the law. And their desire was not just to keep the law, but their desire was to keep it in perfection. And they believed it was attainable. Even though they were hypocrites, and deep down in their heart, they knew they were hypocrites, and Jesus came and uncovered their hypocrisy and, and, and upset their whole religious system, they still believed that because of what they did, because of their allegiance to the law, that they were right with God. And also, on top of that, they believed because they were Jews, they were born into it, that they were God's special people, and that just because of their lineage as Jews, that they were going to be okay with God. And so G this is the conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. This is who Nicodemus is. And so let's go back, and let's, let's read uh, the first eight verses of this conversation to set the stage before we get into John 3.16. It says, now there was a man of, of the Pharisees, and some, uh, it says here, named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. So he was not just... A Pharisee, but he was a leader of the Pharisees. He was a ruler. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things 
that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him. This is really interesting here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And so what is Jesus saying there? When he's saying truly, truly, he's telling Nicodemus, you know a lot of things about the law and about God, but what I'm about to tell you is true. Truly, truly, this is truth. This is ultimate truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Right? That's a logical question, right? I mean, just think about that. If somebody came up to you and said you had no context of Christianity, picture yourself as Nicodemus. You have a view of God that you think you've got it. You understand it. I obey the law. I go to heaven. I do what's right. I go to heaven. And Jesus comes along and he's doing these miracles and Nicodemus recognizes it and says, man, I I see these miracles. And he says, truly, I mean, you must be from God because nobody can do these things unless God sent him. And then Jesus cuts to the chase and says, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you're born again, you can't get to heaven. That would short circuit a Pharisee's brain. What do you mean? And so that's why he says, he says it doesn't make any sense. Let's go back to verse 4. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And you see the ignorance here. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. How can he enter into his mother's womb and and be born? Verse 5. Jesus answered, again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of, of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, we're going to key in on this verse, this verse number eight here. Like, what, what, is, what is he saying? What's Jesus saying here? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about salvation, and we're going to get to John 3.16, which says, for God so loved the world, you believe in the Son of God, you inherit eternal life. And so this is the goal where Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to, right? But he's establishing something first with, with Nicodemus. And this phrase, like it seems totally off track. And I'm telling you, you must be born again. And then he starts talking about the wind. Why talk about the wind? What does the wind have to do with being saved? kind of confusing right Jesus does not make a lot of sense with Nicodemus but look at what he says here it says the wind blows wherever it wishes right you can't control the wind can you You can't control it when I play golf I wish I could I wish when I played golf the wind was always at my back and it would help my ball go an extra 40 yards right but I can't control the wind the wind blows where it wishes right because it is out of my my control and you hear it sound you can hear it sound you see the effects but you don't know where it's come from or where it goes. Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit or born again. What's Jesus saying here? First thing I want to talk to us about the gospel and salvation is that this, salvation is a miracle of God. Salvation is a miracle of God. It's just like the wind. You can't control it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. It is a divine miracle of God. God does saving, right? If I were to ask you, who saved you? 
Did you save yourself or did God save you? I don't think there's a single person in here who would say that you saved yourself. Would you? We know God does saving. I don't save myself. God is the one who does the saving. Salvation is a miracle. And this is what Jesus is trying to get into the head of a highly religious person that believes he can save himself. That believes that he can earn God's approval by being good enough. And that is the condition of mankind. It doesn't matter what your belief system is. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, whatever your belief system is, you fundamentally believe that you don't need Jesus and that you can do it on your own. And and ultimately, maybe somebody can be an atheist and say, I don't even need a God at all. You're trusting in something. You're trusting in yourself. You become a God unto yourself. Everyone trusts in something that they'll be okay after they die. They're trusting in something. And most of the time, they're trusting in their own ability to make it right, to be right. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you can't control it. It's not in your power. The wind blows wherever it wishes. It goes, and you can't direct it. You can't control it. And so it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. Salvation is a divine miracle. Jesus uses an analogy to describe what it is like to be born of the Spirit, to be born again. Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, being born again is is impossible. He says says in verse 9, how can this be? Like, how can this be that this is what it means to be born of the Spirit, to be born again? Jesus responds with this analogy. It's like he's saying this. With man, it's impossible. But with God, because he's the saving God, it's it's possible. All things are possible. For Nicodemus and for all those who trust in their own ability, salvation is not a miracle. If you trust in your own ability to be right with God, you don't need God. You don't need a miracle. You don't need divine intervention. You don't need a sovereign God to save you. You got it on your own, right? But for everybody else, for everybody else, we need need the miracle of, of salvation. We don't believe salvation is attainable by human effort. It's not. It's a miracle of God. Can you just imagine? You know, Scripture paints a very bleak picture of our condition apart from Christ. What, what, what does it say in Ephesians chapter 2 about us? It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Can a dead person do anything to be right with the Lord? You can talk to me. I know it's kind of quiet. Kind of a heavy introduction here. We, we, we dove in the deep end right away. But think about it. I mean, that, that's how Scripture describes us. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't just kind of like messed up a little bit. And that's what, that's what people want to believe. That they're just kind of messed up. I just kind of kind of prop myself up, be a little better, white knuckle it, try really hard, and I'm, and I'm going to be okay. No, scripture says that you are dead apart from Christ. You're spiritually dead. In Corinthians, Paul goes on to say in Corinthians that not only are you dead, you're, you're, you're blinded by the God. You're not only are you spiritually dead, but you're blinded by the God of this world, Satan. And then you're blinded by your sinful nature. So you're doubly blinded and you're spiritually dead. What can a doubly blinded spiritually man do, spiritually dead man do, to make himself right? Nothing. Nothing. I know it's hard. And I understand the angst in our heart. We're like, wait a minute. I think I can do something. We're going to get there. 
But I want you to get this. You can't do anything. When Jesus was before the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus was dead, right? He'd been dead for how long? Three days. What, what did Jesus do with Lazarus? You see, he called him. Lazarus, come forth. And he called him back to life. That's the same picture of salvation. We are, we, before Christ, you were in that tomb and you, you are dead. You're good and dead, right? Jesus waited three days so he can demonstrate his, his deity and his power because Jews believed that after three days, the soul separated from the body and it was impossible. All hope was gone. That's why he waited three days. So he could demonstrate that beyond all hope that is gone, he could raise Lazarus up. But, that, but that, the story of Lazarus is a picture of salvation. It is beyond hope. We're past three days gone. We're in the grave. And unless the Lord calls us out, we're, we're going to die and go to hell. And, and that's the picture. Salvation is a miracle. And when God calls us and we hear the gospel, he calls us. And salvation is a miracle. It's just real quickly. If you still struggle with this idea that it's actually God who does the saving and we have nothing to do with it. I know that's hard. It's hard to hear. Nothing to do with it. Let's, let's look at Matthew 19 real quickly. This is the story of the rich young ruler. It says, and behold, a man came to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do? Can you do anything? And he said to him, why, why do you ask? me what is good there's only one who is good if you would enter life keep the commandments he said to him which ones and jesus said you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself jesus says here's the law do it do it and you get to go to heaven the young man said to him all these i have kept what do i still lack Jesus said to him, if you would be, this is so powerful, if you would be perfect, what's the standard to get to heaven? Perfection. Wait a minute, Jesus. How, you're telling me perfection is the standard? That I have to be perfect to get to heaven? I mean, this is just too good. This is just too hard. Nobody can be perfect. First you told me I had to obey these commandments, and now you're telling me if, if I would be perfect. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Listen to this. This is kind of how we react. Listen to his followers, the disciples said to Jesus, truly I say to you, well, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, Jews in that day believed that rich people had a, a higher, uh, a better chance of getting to heaven. They believed that, that, that they could get to heaven better than anybody else. They had a, a, a better chance. And so Jesus is painting this picture that even the rich person is not going to be able to get in. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a camel, big camel, through the eye of a needle, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He is blowing these disciples' minds. Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with who? 
salvation is a miracle. With man, Jesus says, you cannot save yourself. There is zero you can do to save yourself. It is a work of God. Dead people have to be called back to life. Salvation is a miracle of God. What is impossible for man to do is possible for God. What is impossible for man to do is possible for God. So this is Nicodemus. This is the, 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 the groundwork leading up to Nicodemus' question. And Jesus is trying to paint the picture that you have to be born again. Your, your, your view of the law and being right with God and trying to be perfect Jesus is flipping it on its head and saying, you have to be born again, and you can't control it, Nicodemus. And then watch what he does here. Now we're going to get to the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Let's go to, let's go to verse 9 first before we, we get to verse 16. John 3, 9, it says, after Jesus paints this picture of impossibility of salvation, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Kind of like the disciples in Matthew 19. This doesn't make sense, Jesus. How can this be? I thought I had religion figured out, Jesus. How can this be? And then this is how it can be. The second point is this, is that love is the motivation of saving grace. Love is the motivation of saving grace. Salvation is a miracle of God, and love is the motivation of saving grace. Let's look at John 3, 16. How can, these, how can this be, Jesus? It can be because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever, who's whoever? Er, everybody. Everybody. Anybody who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why did God send his son? Did he send his son into the world Burn us all up with fire because of our impurities? Is that why he sent his son? That's what Jesus is saying here. He didn't, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn us. Did we deserve condemnation? We did. And God could have sent his son. You know, no, his son's coming back one day. And we read about it in Revelation. He's coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to go to be with him. But he's going to hang around for a little while. And we're going to come back with him. And he's not coming back to save anybody. He's coming back to condemn. But the first time he came, he came because he was a reflection of the heart of God who loves. He came not to condemn but to save. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The mission of the Son of God is inseparably, inseparably linked to the love of God. The mission of Jesus, you can't separate it from the heart of love in our Father God. You know that word so, it says, for God so loved the world. That picture there, it's, it's describing the intensity of the love of the Father God for us. He so loved, it's this intense love because he loved us so much. And he desired to rescue us from our condition of depravity. And he sent his son, his only son, to take our place on the cross because he loved us. Because he loved us. His love, the perfect love of the Father is the motivation of saving grace. 
What does, what does the love of, of the Father look like? What does the love of the Father look like? You know, Jesus is the perfect image of God, the perfect reflection of who our Father God is. You know, it says, it says in John 14, the disciples asked, Philip said to Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the Father. We want to see the Father, and it is enough for us. If we will just see the Father, we'll be good to go. Just show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, speaking of himself, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So who was the perfect representation of the love of the Father? It was Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father God. It says that in Hebrews 1.3. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So, so what, did, what did Jesus demonstrate for us? How did he demonstrate in his life, as we see in the Gospels, how did he demonstrate his love for us? Jesus was moved with compassion as he would see the crowds of people following him. And we see that in one location in Matthew 9. It's one of my favorite demonstrations of the love and compassion of our Father as seen through the life of the Son. I love this picture. You know, multitudes and multitudes of people would follow Jesus. And why would they follow him? Because he did miracles. Actually, in John chapter 6, Jesus kind of confronted them about that and said, you're following me, not, not, not because you believe in me, but because I've fed you and you, your, belly were, your belly was filled. So lots of people followed him because he, because he did miracles and did wonders. And I see this in Matthew 9, this is awesome picture. It says he, he, he looks up and he sees the crowds. And I believe it was tens of thousands of people that would follow him. And it says he was moved with compassion. And I always picture, when, when I see this in my mind, I picture these tens of thousands of people. And I picture individual people in that crowd. People that are struggling with depression, anxiety, fear, sinful habits. They're sick, they're oppressed. Individual people with names, with families that they belong to, and struggles that they're dealing with individual struggles, people that are getting abused and neglected and not taken care of, and it's thousands of people. And at one time, Jesus looks up and he sees everybody and he's filled with compassion. And he tells his disciples, he says, he says, these are like sheep without a shepherd. They're just scattered, they're lost like sheep without a shepherd. And he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that that he would send out laborers to to, to take care of these people. I love that picture of the love of the Father as demonstrated to the Son. He sees everyone, he sees their struggles and their pain, and he has love and compassion in his heart for them. Another example of the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, is Jesus touched the unclean. Matthew 8 You see that in Matthew 8, Jesus touched the leper. You guys know that story? Lepers were unclean. You couldn't get, get, according to the Pharisees, you couldn't get a certain number of distance, certain uh, uh, proximity to to a leper without being considered unclean like them. And what did Jesus do? You know, Jesus was God. He could have healed this leper. He He could have stayed at home. And just in his mind, known that individual leper and just thought in his mind to heal that leper. And the leper would have been cleansed. But Jesus didn't do that. He went, he providentially set himself where he knew he needed to be for that individual leper. So he could not just heal him, but touch him and heal him. 
He touched him. He touched him. That's a heart of compassion and love to demonstrate that there is nothing in your life that is beyond God's healing, that he will touch and heal each and everything that you deal with if you will surrender your heart and your life to him. He's full of love and compassion. He touches us in our most ugly places. Isn't that good news? Some of you feel like, man, I have, I have such mess in my life. I have so many things that, that, that if people knew who I really was, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't want to be around me. Jesus, Jesus will touch that area. He will heal that. Jesus ate with sinners. We see that in Matthew 9. He ate with sinners and the Pharisees could not handle this. He ate with sinners and, and, and the Pharisees approached the disciples of Jesus and said, you know, if your leader was truly a man of God, he would never sit in the house and eat dinner with publicans and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And what, what does Jesus say? He read their minds. He knew their thoughts. And he says, look, the sick need a physician. Those that are well, they don't need to be healed. I didn't come for those that are well. I didn't come for the, for the Pharisees who think they don't need me because they're trusting in their own good works. I came for those who know that salvation is a miracle. I came for those who know that they cannot make themselves right with God. I came for those who know that they are desperate and in need of help. That's why I came for the sick. That's why Jesus ate with sinners. And and when he ate with sinners, he was a perfect reflection of the love of the Father. Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman. In John 4, we'll get to that in the next chapter. It has such an amazing picture there. Not only was she a woman, and women were, were not valued in that culture. They were less than. A lot of people think in our culture women aren't valued, and there are struggles that women have for equality definitely is true, but it's nothing in comparison to what it would have been like in Bible times. Women were less than. And not only that, but she was a Samaritan. And Jesus was a Jew. And for Jesus to go and have a conversation with a woman who was a Samaritan, and the Samaritans were cross-bred. They were Jews, Jews and, and other foreign people intermarried and, and had babies. And these were Samaritans. And the Jews thought they were greater than the Samaritans. And they were like lepers to them. And Jesus went and have a, had a conversation with him. And lastly, another demonstration of the, of the love of the Father as demonstrated through Jesus is that Jesus forgave an adulterous woman. And we all know the story, right? The Pharisees come and grab a woman caught in the act of adultery. That, that story always, I mean, just really bothers me for multiple reasons. Like, caught in the act? What were these guys doing? Watching. got to keep it PG here. My kids might be watching. <laughs> like, I mean, they're just, the pride, and you know, the goal of it was to trip up Jesus. I mean, the Pharisees' mission was to trip up Jesus and to get him to do something that was against their rules so they, they could declare him a, a heretic and, and, and to discredit him. So they threw this woman, called in the act of adultery, the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus, and, and of course the Pharisees say, what are you going to do, Jesus? She's caught in the act. The law says to stone her. And you know, the story, he kneels down. And I wish we knew what he wrote, but he just, he's moving, he's riding in, in the dirt. 
and just says, you without sin, you go ahead, you cast that first stone. You without sin. He exposed their, their hypocrisy. And then he looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? She says, they're, they're nowhere, sir. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't justify her sin. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't say your sin didn't matter. He said, go and sin no more. He called her to holiness. But he forgave her sin. That's the demonstration of the love of, of the Father. Salvation is a miracle. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. We need the love of God to be shed abroad in our heart when we hear the gospel. And our lives are transformed. The third thing I want us to see is this. Is that faith alone grants us access. Faith alone grants us access. So let's go back. Let's go back to verse 15. We'll get back in the 15 and 16 here. So salvation is of God. It's a miracle. And it's a demonstration of God's love. That's why he saves because he loves. And then let's look at this. Verse Verse 15. It says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, whoever believes. How do you get saved? You gotta believe. So what can you do to get saved? Wait, I thought, I thought God, that salvation was a miracle. You couldn't do anything. It's true. You can't do anything. It's, salvation is of God. He saves. He calls you out. He is sovereign in salvation, but wait a minute. What is Jesus saying here? He's talked about the wind earlier. He said the wind blows wherever it wants to. Nicodemus, you can't control being right with God. And he's like, wait a minute. Now you're saying that there is something I can do. That's right. Believe. Believe in me. Whoever, Whoever believes. So that's 15 and 16. Let's look at verse 18. Whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So here we have one of the greatest seeming contradictions. People have struggled with it for a long, long time. God is the one who saves. We can't control salvation. We can't save ourselves. But it seems to, the word of God says that, that, that we we do have something to add to it, that we, we believe. And, and, and so these things will never intersect. I think people struggle with the idea of predestination. They struggle with the idea that, that God calls us to salvation and the idea that only some who are called are, are, are going to be saved. And they get hung up on this idea that, that there's, you know, there's nothing we can do and God's the one who saves and then you've got people on, on the other side who say, well, yeah, well of course, you, you have to believe. It's, yes, you believe and you can be saved. And I just want to tell you that Jesus says that both are true. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. And if there was, we wouldn't need the Son of God. If there was something you could do to save yourself, we wouldn't need Jesus. So it's true. And then if you don't believe, you don't get saved. It's, it's It's the twin truths, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And and, and we will never comprehend it fully. We'll never get it fully. It doesn't make sense to us. How can God be sovereign and and how can I make a choice? If God is sovereign, then I have no choice. No, you have a choice. You can reject. 
You can believe or you cannot believe. You can reject and say, I want nothing to do with God, and, and, and you will suffer the consequences. But God is the one who saves. God is the one who saves. We are saved by faith alone, apart from works. Romans 3, 21 through 22 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God is through, say it with me, faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith. It's, it's an action on our part. We have to believe. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? Can, 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 we, do, can we save ourselves? No. No, not by the law, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be right with the Lord. No one is justified by faith apart from works of the, of the law. No one is justified unless it's by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, for by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So it takes, it takes faith. Salvation is a miracle. And salvation is provided because God loves us and desires that we would surrender to him. And salvation comes because we believe. Because we believe in the, in the Son of God. You know this, this doctrine of, of faith alone. Faith alone has been one of, it's one of the central doctrines of our faith that makes us who we are today as Protestants. You know we're not Catholic here tonight, right? I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I was never raised Catholic. Some of you may have been raised Catholic. And maybe some of you don't know that the, the history of our faith as Protestants. But there's a difference between what Rome, Roman, Roman Catholicism teaches and what we believe as Protestants. And I don't know, some of you may have heard of the Great Reformation back in the 14 and 1500s. Has anybody heard of Martin Luther? Let me see your hands. Who's heard of Martin Luther? Okay, you guys, you guys know. So Martin Luther was a German monk and he believed like Nicodemus. And he believed that he was going to try to be perfect to be right with the Lord. He believed that he could do it on his own. And he had, constantly had this guilty conscience because he knew he wasn't perfect. And all of a sudden he was reading in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. And he read the verse. It said the just, those that are justified with the Lord, right with the Lord, are justified by faith. By faith. And he didn't make sense with his worldview. He, he had a, there was a combination between grace and works. A combination between faith and works. There was this fusion that was taught in, in, in Rome that you cooperated with the grace of God and you added to your salvation by penance, by sacraments, by, by allegiance to the church, by allegiance to the Pope, by allegiance to Mary, and you added to your salvation. And he saw in Scripture that Scripture didn't teach that, that it's by faith alone, it's by believing in Jesus Christ and, and his own righteousness is accounted to you. And you don't have to earn that righteousness. You have to earn that righteousness. And so... Martin Luther wrote what's called his 95 Theses, and, and he nailed it to the, the door of, of the church, St. Peter's Church. And it was kind of like the spark, the, 
that, that set ablaze a, a, a the great reformation. Others like him rose up and there was a rebellion against the false gospel that was taught that it's works and grace. And so we know according to scripture, according to what God's word says, it is not a fusion of grace and works. It is by faith alone that we are saved and justified. J.I. Packer, a theologian, says this about the great reformation. He describes it like this. He says, Rome had said, God's grace is great. For through Christ's cross and his church, salvation is possible for all who will work and suffer for it. So come to church and toil. But the reformers said, God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. For through Christ's cross and his spirit, salvation, full and free, with its unlimited guarantee of eternal joy, is given once and forever to all who believe. So come to Christ and trust and take. And that's the gospel. It's the gospel of the New Testament. That's what we believe. Salvation is a miracle, and it's motivated by love. And we gain access to it through faith. And then lastly, lastly, here's the last thing we want to see in this text. Let's read verses 18 through 21. So God loves the world that he gave. And anyone who believes can inherit eternal life. And then it says this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. So why don't people believe in Jesus? This is the judgment. This is the, the conclusion Jesus makes as to why people reject. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, speaking of himself, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why people re- reject. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the fourth thing, according to these verses, is that judgment awaits those who hate the light. A judgment awaits those who hate the, who hate the light. Nobody is condemned. No one is predestined to hell. They go there because they want to go there. That's what it says. It says, why do people, why are they condemned? Because they love the darkness more than they love the light. They hate the light. They love their evil deeds. And, you know, people want to talk about, you know, I I do believe that sometimes Christians can be stumbling blocks um, to non-believers getting saved. And I don't want to discredit that. But I I believe that sometimes that's over-talked about some. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the number one reason why people reject Jesus is because they love the darkness. Because they love their sin. Because they don't want to embrace the light. Because what does the light do? It exposes who we really are. It's kind of like when I turn on the light and I get home sometimes and the, the roaches scatter. And the wife's watching right now and, and she runs and jumps on top of the table <laughs> and starts screaming on top of her lungs and I don't kill the roach fast enough and she gets really angry at me because I'm not a good roach killer because I'm partially kind of scared of them too. And um, I like to get the spray. Who likes to hear the crunch of the roach under your foot? I mean, it's terrible, right? You all just got grossed out right now. Totally sidetracked because the message has been heavy. Want to give a little light moment here. This is the joke time of the message. 
But just like that roach, when the light turns on, they scatter. And that's why people reject the gospel, because the light turns on. And you know, people want to believe that the gospel message is not offensive. They want to make the gospel message not offensive. It is impossible to make the gospel message not offensive, because what does the gospel message say? You're dead. You can't save yourself. You're evil. You're an enemy of the cross, right? So, I mean, I can take some flowers and bring them over to my non-believer's neighbor, neighbor and, t- you know, try to make them feel good about themselves and do a lot of good deeds. And, and those are all good. Our good deeds matter. But at some point, when the gospel light shines, it, if they're not ready for it and they don't, don't want to believe it, they're going to reject the light. And, it's, uh, and, and again, let's, let's, let's go back. Salvation is a miracle of God. It's not up to me. Matthew 28, 19 is our mission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, making making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We We just do our business. We do our commission. And we shine the light. And either they scatter because of the light, or they run to the light, and they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? So people reject Jesus because they love the darkness and hate the light. I kind of said this earlier, but no one ends up in hell because they were preordained to. They go there because they did not believe in the name of the only Son of God. God wants to save people. Salvation is from God. He is sovereign in saving. He alone can bring dead people back to life. He lovingly made a way for us to receive by faith the salvation we cannot earn. There's only two options in all of life. We will either love the light or love the darkness. Love the light or love the darkness. We will either scatter when the light comes or we will embrace the light when it's turned on in our heart and it probes into who we really are. Only two categories of people. And we get the privilege We get the privilege of being ambassadors for Christ. So scripture tells us. And what do we get the privilege of doing? Imploring people, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Amen? Would you stand with me? God, I thank you for your word, for your truth. God, for you so loved the world that you gave Love gives. And the most perfect demonstration of your love was your generosity. The most perfect demonstration of your love was your generosity to give us a way by faith to be saved. And God, we recognize that we can't save ourselves. It's not anything we can earn, anything that we can do to climb up the ladder of good works to be right with you. God, I thank you for that, that salvation is a miracle. I thank you that you have wrought a miracle in our hearts. Those of us that know you, Lord, you have wrought a miracle in our hearts. And you, through your gospel, the gospel light, it's shown in our hearts, Lord. And we responded by faith. And I thank you for that free gift of salvation. And Lord, I pray for all of us here, Lord, that know people, our family members, our friends, or coworkers that don't know you. God, I pray that you would use us as ambassadors and your ambassadors to be your mouthpieces, to speak your truth, 
to declare your goodness, to declare the power of the gospel, that people can be forgiven, they can be justified by faith alone, through grace alone. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for these people here tonight. Lord, bless them, encourage them. And Lord, I pray that you keep us safe until we meet again on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Love you guys. See you next time.